You're listening to episode three of Speaking with Deacon, the Mass in Sacred Scripture. Speaking with Deacon is a production of the Perusia Podcast Network in partnership with Voice of Charity Australia and EWTN Asia Pacific. Join us as we discuss strategies that will empower us to announce the gospel of the Lord daily through our words and deeds. This is Speaking with Deacon. Hello, and thanks for joining us again on Speaking with Deacon. I am Mark Griffin, your host, and joining me today, as always, is Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers. Deacon Harold, thanks for joining us again. It's great to be with you, Mark, and uh, all the viewers out there. Thank you for having me. Well, that's great to have you. Now, today we're going to talk about a fairly important topic to, to us Catholics. We're going to talk about the Mass. Now, the Mass, obviously, containing in the Mass is we, we've got um, the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. So yeah, quite, quite a large topic, but, but let's go right back to the ground level here. What exactly is the Catholic Mass? So the Catholic Mass is the offering of uh, what, what was basically how Christ said he, 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 that God wants to be worshipped, right? At the Last Supper, uh, Christ took bread and wine and uh, uh, turned them into his body, blood, soul, divinity in anticipation of the sacrifice he's going to make on the cross, the sacrifice that conquered death and allowed us to, to live with him forever. And, and so the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is the representation of Christ's uh, death and, and resurrection through which he gives us life and enables us to, to, uh, to, to with by we cooperating in that grace, in that sacrament, to be able to come to deep uh, love and intimacy with him and uh, God willing at the end of our lives, enjoy eternal salvation with him. So the, the, the Mass itself um, has its roots in the Old Testament, um, in uh, not just the, the the Passover meal, but there's many other elements of the Old Testament that uh, are brought into the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So it's very Jewish uh, in in its uh, in, in its presentation. Uh, if you look in the um, Catechism, it talks about the Saint Justin Martyr talks about what they did in the early church when it came to the Mass. Um, they, they they had uh, readings from the prophets and then from the apostles. And then they, you know, uh, they, someone gave a homily, then they um, offered the sign of peace. And then, you know, they, they did the offering water and wine and the, the priest did the prayers. It became the body and blood. And then the deacons distributed the Eucharist. So, and that was in 155 AD, you know, and, and it's, and it's 2022 and we're still doing it. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there's something beautiful and simple and eternal about this beautiful uh, offering to God. And with, with this, this is something we've been doing, as you say, for so long. And I suppose it, something a lot of people don't understand, even people who do come along and do it, they don't understand why they do it. They don't understand why the obligation and, and why they do it every week and why some people do this every day. What, why are we called? Why are we obligated to go to Mass? Why is it not optional? Well, here's the thing. You know, we, 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 we call an obligation, but it really is an opportunity, you know, because obligation has to say, I have to do it. I have no choice. They're taking away my freedom, right? That's the way we hear that word. 
those those are kind of some of the 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 the, um, the thoughts and images that come to your mind. But actually, um, it's an obligation as well as one of the commandments, right? We got to keep holy the Sabbath day. And then for our Jewish brothers and sisters, of course, the Sabbath day was on Saturday, which started uh, sundown on Friday and went through the entire day on Saturday. We're not able to do any work or, or, or those kinds of things. It was, a, it was a day dedicated to the Lord because God rested on the seventh day that we see uh, in the scriptures. And so this idea of uh, Sabbath is a day of offering and rest uh, to the Lord. And we're supposed to keep that day holy, right? We're supposed to sanctify that day in a special way. Um, and the way that we sanctify that day now because of Christ is the offering of the mass. And so God doesn't have the mass because he needs us, right? It's an opportunity for us to say, to be grateful, to say thank you for everything that God has done for us. Uh, remember, remember, because the, the relationship between uh, God and his church is, is kind of is often in the scripture depicted as marriage, right? Revelation 19 verse 9 says, blessed are those who are called to the wedding or actually blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb in the Greek. So uh, it's a wedding. And so uh, it's like a marriage. Now imagine you, you're doing everything for your spouse and your spouse never says thank you is never grateful. Is that, I mean, is that a real relationship? Yeah, I don't think so, right? It's, it's, it's a covenant. It, it, it's both, it's a both and, right? So God, God gives his life to us and we give ourselves back to him in the way that he wants to be worshiped, that he himself told us and revealed to us how he wanted to be worshiped, how, how we give thanks to him. Cause that's what Eucharist is Eucharistian in Greek means thanksgiving, right? So, and that's what we're giving thanks to God in the way that God wants to be honored, that God has told us how He wants to be worshiped. And so, I mean, come on, an hour a week is 168 hours in a week, and all God is asking for is one, right? Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, could you not uh, wait with me even an hour, right? So, uh, but so for many of us, that's that's the most important hour of our week because God is not not only are we saying thank you, He's giving us the gift gift of His life in word and in sacrament, right? So He's He's feeding us with His word that prepares our hearts, our minds, and our souls, and then receive Him again, body, blood, soul, divinity in the Eucharist, and from there we then go out from that from that sacrifice, from that thanksgiving to live a Eucharistic faith in the world so that people can truly encounter Christ when they meet us. And, and for many people, that's their first introduction to Jesus is when they meet us. And the other thing that the Eucharist helps us do is empower us to go and share the message of Jesus Christ. You know, so many people, like when they're in love, they, I mean, they talk to everybody about the person that they're in love with. Oh, I met this person. They're amazing. You know, she, you know, it's like, it's like we were, we're soulmates. We're made for, I mean, they can't, they can't wait to tell people about this other person. And that's what God asks us to do as well. Right. It, it, we're, we're so in love with Christ that we cannot help, but tell people about him and tell people about our relationship, how much he means to us. You know, it, so it's, it's just like a, a relationship, except lived on a, on, a, on a very deep level. Why? Because that relationship is with Almighty God. Now, you touched on it a little bit just a minute ago, and 
to how Christ is present. You said in word and in sacrament, but you use the word right at the start, a representation. It's, it's not like we've got Jesus there on the cross and we're not killing him again. It is a representation of Calvary. So can you clarify that little detail and what you mean by representation as opposed to having and doing it over again, and then go through a little bit the ways that, that Jesus is present. So obviously words, sacrament, but but also open up a little bit just the community of people and yes. how Christ is present in that and just the different ways he is present there with us. Yeah, so yeah, I'll start, I'll start, I'll start with that. So the church talks about the fourfold presence of Christ, all right? So Christ is present in the people that are gathered together, because Christ says himself, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Christ is present in the word that is proclaimed, because it tells us the prologue of John's gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And, and so that's why we stand, for example, when we hear the gospel, because we're hearing the words that came out of the mouth of God himself, right? So that, that's two. The, the third presence is in the priest, right? He stands in persona Christi. That means in the person of Christ, right? So, so on earth, the priest represents the bridegroom giving life to Christ's bride, the church on earth, in anticipation of the heavenly wedding banquet where Christ, the eternal bridegroom, will be giving life and love to his bride, the church forever in heaven. And of course, the fourth presence is the Eucharist, where Christ gives himself to us body, blood, soul, and divinity in that most blessed sacrament. Now, when I talked about representation, here's what I mean. Um, we have to look at Christ's words very, very carefully. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's, he's not saying, when you do this, remember me. Not, not just playing with words here. Um, you know, the, the word that's used there in Greek is for uh, memory is anamnesis, right? So it, in, in Hebrew, that zachar, uh, that means in memory of, or zacher, which means memorial. So for the Jewish people, our brothers and sisters, memory, zacher, is something that's alive, okay? Memory is a living thing. So memory just doesn't mean remember the past, right? So when our Jewish brothers and sisters celebrate the Seder meal, the Passover meal today, they're not remembering what happened, you know, mindfully remembering what happened 3,000 years ago in the Exodus when Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. No, they are actually there. They're actually there. And so the graces, so, so zakir or memory means the graces and blessings of that past event are made real and present right now, right? And so, so for example, in Exodus 13, verse 8, um, uh, those of you who are familiar with the Seder meal, remember that the youngest child asked, why is this night different from every other night? Why are we eating unleavened bread? Why are we eating bitter herbs? The, Exodus 13, 8 is the answer that the father who acts as the priest, the family would give to his child. You will tell your son that, that uh, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of the land of Egypt. You see, it's not what the Lord did for our ancestors 3000 years ago when they came out of the land of Egypt, what the Lord did for me when 
I came out of the land of Egypt. See, so that living memory brings the Exodus event and makes it real and present today as if they were there. So Jesus Christ, using that same language, using that same Jewish concept of memory, when he uses at the Last Supper, what he's saying is that the graces and the blessings of the one event of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is made real and present on every altar at every mass. So we're not killing Christ over and over and over again. No, it's the one event 2,000 years ago uh, at Calvary, that one event that is made real and made present at the holy sacrifice of the mass. And that's where the idea of memory. So we say representation, we're representing what happened on that very first uh, Holy Thursday and Good Friday. That is, we are standing at the foot of the cross when we are at every mass. I suppose another way to, to try and paint that picture is that he is as truly present with us today making that sacrifice for us in our mass today as our sins are when he is on the cross back at that time our sins from today our sins from tomorrow and every day following he was bearing the weight of those sins at that time it's sort of those two things cross over we're within the same time and space in a way if you look at it like that aren't we yeah because even at mass we acknowledge that fact Yes, we say uh, Agnus Dei Quitoli Picato Mundi, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He didn't take away the sins of the world. I mean, he, he, now he does now, but it's back then on the cross. Because what's the greatest sin is death, the complete separation of our life from God. I mean, of all the sins that He took on the cross and all the sins He did take on the cross, He bore, truly bore the the heaviness and the weight and the burden of our sin. But the greatest burden was death. Remember, because that was the great, that was the worst and most tragic result of the fall in Genesis 3 was death, was cutting ourselves off from God's life. And so by, so he entered into that death. He entered into that separate, although he was never really separated because he's God, but he enters into death to conquer death. And that's why it says in the scriptures, right? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right. Uh -huh. This is why we shouldn't be necessarily afraid of death. That's why some of the martyrs, you know, they look forward to death, you know, which seems nuts because that instinct of self-preservation kicks in. But they understood that because of what Christ did, he conquered death. And so death now becomes a doorway. It's not an end. It's the doorway into eternal life with God forever. You know, and so that, that's important to remember. We can discuss the realities of what's actually taking place here and in this forum. But when we go to Mass, some day in, day out, some week in, week out, and we sit there and we see the same thing every week, and, and this time around there's a kid screaming at, at, at their parent next to us or, or there's someone that's fiddling around with their phone or reading the bulletin over there, and, and it becomes really hard to can concentrate. We might know the reality of what's happening, but, but how do you suggest we enter into that reality more fully? How can we concentrate and just not take it for granted that this is what we do each week and then after that we go and have lunch or whatever? How do we live that moment and be there in that reality when it is something that it is a repetition? Yeah, that's a good point. Because um, one of the things as human beings, we are creatures of habit 
and we're often creatures of routine, right? So it, like, think of a typical person in the culture, right? They get up, they have a routine that they follow. They have their morning coffee. They might have a bagel as they're, as they're drinking their coffee, eating their bagel. They're on their phone looking at the news that happened overnight. You know, they get into their, their car and they, and they drive through, they drive the same route to work. You know, they, you know, they, they know when the light's going to turn green, all this kind of stuff. And, and so there's, there's a comfort um, uh, in routine, right? Like birthdays, you know, when you go to birthday, there's going to be a cake, there's going to be balloons, there's going to be people singing happy birthday, you're going to get presents. There's a routineness in that. So there's nothing wrong with routine itself. It's be, when, when we begin to forget the specialness of what that of what the routine actually means. So going to mass is just not another thing that we do, right? It's a relationship that we're entering into. So when we're walking to the church in a sense, we're leaving the world and entering into um, the, the, the place that connects us between heaven and earth, which is what happens on that altar. And so because we're doing the same things over again, why? Because we're building, you know, spiritual muscle memory. That's why an athlete, right, that goes to practice, they'll, they'll do the same things in practice over and over again. Person playing basketball will bounce the ball hundreds of thousands of times in practice. They'll take, uh, they'll shoot the basket hundreds of thousands of times in practice. Soccer, you know, or, or football, they'll kick the, the, uh, the ball around the pitch hundreds of thousands of times over and over and over again in practice because when they get to the game they don't have to think about what to do with their bodies because they train their bodies to respond well the same thing is true of us and the holy sacrifice of the mass we do those same things over and over again word and sacrament word and sacrament because we're building spiritual muscle memory and that spiritual muscle memory is preparing us then to enter uh, into this relationship with, with Christ in a very deep way, in a very personal and intimate way. You know, it, Christ is strengthening us and preparing us for the battle. Where is the battle? The battle's in the culture that's trying to tell us there is no God. The battle's in the culture is trying to say that if you don't follow our agenda, you're going to be deplatformed, you're going to be canceled. Yeah, um, you know, uh, it's, it's the culture that's saying that you know, women can be men and men can be women just because they feel like, it. I mean, all kinds of, that's, that's what Christ is preparing us for. He's preparing us to stand up uh, for the, the truth and beauty and goodness of the gospel against the culture that's trying to kill the life of God in us. Great. So we've sort of established a bit about why the mass and, and, and why, why it exists and why we go. Let's look a little bit about and talk a little bit about the structure of the Mass. Why does the Liturgy of the Word come before the Liturgy of the Eucharist? Is there a reason for the ordering and the structure of the Mass? Well, remember what I mentioned earlier, that the Mass comes out of uh, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewishness of our background. And so uh, for our Jewish brothers, just, they have the synagogue, right? And that's where they, we, we see, for example, when Jesus entered the synagogue, in, uh, in, in Nazareth, he opened the scroll to Isaiah, he began to read the scroll, right? So, so the, their service before centered around the word, right? And, and so for us, um, the word is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? In, in John's gospel, prologue God's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him without anything made that was made. Right. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
But so when God first revealed himself to us, he revealed himself to us in the word, right? And so, so we're fed and nurtured by the word of God. And, and so when God is engaging us in his word, we just can't sit there like spectators. And you're right. I, I see that so sitting up at the altar with the priest. We can look out. We can see people. And you see people reading the bulletin or, you know, they're, they're being distracted. There's God, right? The, the readings are coming at them. And they're sitting there like, like they're completely oblivious while God is trying to speak to them, to speak to their life, to their hearts, to their situations, to their needs, to their circumstances to their lives, right? And so how do we get more out of that? Very, very simple. Um, for, first of all, um, put yourself in a space where you're open to receiving God's word in your life. So, so for me, what I do is I close my eyes because I was a, a, a monk in, in my 20s, right? And, and so one of the things that they uh, taught us to do when we're focusing, uh, to be more focused in, is to close our eyes, to block out the distractions that may be happening around us so we can focus on the word that's being proclaimed. Or some people may have to follow along in the, in the, the, the missile. That's fine. Or if you have the readings on your phone, that's fine. If you have to look at the person so you can focus on what they're saying, that's fine. Uh, pay attention. But then the other the simple thing to do is to ask yourself, what is God saying to me right now in and through his word. How is God speaking to my life right now? And I'm telling you, when you approach the scriptures that way, the readings at mass, you're going to be surprised how those readings are relating to what's going on in your life. Because, And that's not by just chance or that's just coincidence. That's God saying, right now, I understand your pain. I understand that you're scared to death because of COVID. I understand that you're angry right now because you can't have a, you and your wife are fighting all the time. You know, I totally understand, you know, that you're scared of the diagnosis that you, you just went to the doctor because you weren't feeling well, feeling well, and you're scared of the diagnosis. I know you're afraid that you might lose your job because you, you know, you, you don't want to get the, the COVID shot. You might lose your job. I understand all of that. And God is saying in those readings that I love you, that you're not alone that you don't have to be afraid that I'm with you. You know, that, that's what God is saying to us. And so once we create space in our own hearts to receive what the Lord is giving us, then those readings will uh, literally feed our spirits and our souls that then prepares that soul to receive our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. So, it, that's, so the, the Lord literally is feeding us with his word, preparing our hearts. And, and that's, and that's beautiful. In fact, that's why Lectio Divina, you know, outside of mass, the, the, just a prayerful reading of scripture is so important because God continues to touch us and to speak to us in and through his word. So the word comes first, preparing us for the Eucharist that comes next. Wonderful. And we might get into what you're talking about Lectio Divina in, in a future podcast. We'll get into to prayer itself and, and, and the, the best ways or the most effective ways that we can pray. Um, but what, you, you, what you're beginning to do now is you're beginning to, to touch on the scripture and the mass in scripture. We've talked about specifically the readings, obviously scripture right there in the mass, but the whole mass itself, the whole thing is based in scripture. You can go back 
And you can look through the scriptures and find the mass identified in, in so many of these passages. And you have actually done that. You put together this book, the mass in sacred scripture, and you've actually gone right through and you've each, each and every part of the mass, you've identified the origin of that ritual or that prayer or that, that offering, where it comes from in the scriptures. Now, you've done an audio presentation on this as well. And in that presentation, you tell the story about where you were um, doing, was it a TV show or a radio broadcast or something and with, with some Protestant ministers? And one of them had pulled you aside and, and he, he challenged you. He said, I bet you can't tell me where your mass is in scripture or something to that effect. Can you, can you share a little bit of that story with us? Cause I think that that's a good, um, that's a good basis for the need for a booklet like this. So can you share that story with us? Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of people may uh, recognize me from EWTN, right? The eternal word television network, you know, the Catholic channel. Um, but about 10 years ago, I was on TBN, the Trinity broadcast network, which is the Protestant, a version of EWTN. And they said, well, Deacon, what were you doing on there? Well, they invited me to come on. Um, and uh, and they knew I was Catholic, you know, uh, but there were some of the pastors there who didn't like the fact that I was there and they would challenge me. So this particular pastor, um, you know, wanted to challenge me and he, and he pulled me, like you said, to the side. And he said, you, you can't show me from the word of God. He held this Bible is King James Bible waving his hand. You can't show me from the word of God where your mass comes from. Because why? Because so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters mistakenly believe that the mass is just made up, that it's not, but we are not a biblical church, um, that our faith does not come from the Bible, just comes from tradition, which we make up. And that, and that. Well, no, our, our faith is deeply rooted in, in the scriptures, especially the mass. And so when he said that, I said, okay, um, how much time do you have? Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the mass line by line. And I'm going to show you where every line of the mass comes from the Bible. In fact, we're going to use your Bible to show where the mass comes from. Right. And so what we did was I would read, you know, because I had a little book called the, the, the uh, mass in scripture. Uh, the, or the, no, the mass of Vatican II. And it had English on the one side and Latin on the other. It just shows you know, what we say at mass. And so I said, I'm showing you this because you've never been to mass. And I'm just, here's what we say. So I can show you, here's what we say at mass. And I'm going to point here. And you're going to, I'm going to tell you where you can find it in your Bible. And if you're satisfied, we'll, we'll keep going. If you're not satisfied, we'll stop. And he agreed to that. And so we started going line by line. So just a couple example, right? The very, how do we start off every mass? In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. So I said, open up to Matthew 28, verse 19. So he opens up to Matthew chapter 28. Chapter 28 is the last chapter of Matthew's gospel. Um, the verse is often called the Great Commission. It's verse 19. It's like just one or two verses from the end of Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then we say, amen. That comes from 1 Chronicles 16, verse 36. So he looked up for his Bible, 1 Chronicles 16, 36, where he read, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, amen, and praise the Lord. Okay? And so we went line by line through the penitential rite, through the confidior, you know, I confess to Almighty God, every line, 
um, to the the Gloria, and uh, you know, and then uh, the first reading, responsorial psalm, which is scripture, second reading scripture, gospel scripture, homily, all that, and then I said, "Bless are you, Lord God of all creation," and that's when He stopped me, because He realized, "Uh oh, so far, just about everything that He said, I found it in my Bible." So he couldn't argue with me and say that we were not a biblical church. He could not argue with me and say the mass is, is not biblical because I just showed him from his Bible where, where the mass comes from. And so that idea came out of when I was studying in graduate school at Father Mitch Pacwa. Um, we, would, we would read the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And so when we're going through, we're like, wait a minute, we say that at mass. Well, wait a minute, we say that at mass. And I thought, you know, um, how many lines from the mass can I find in the Bible? Well, as it turns out, as you just showed in the book, just about every single line of the mass comes from the Bible. And if the line itself isn't there, the concept might be there, like the, the, right. the reason for the, for the, the ritual, the practice or, or whatever it might be. So it literally proves that our mass is entirely biblical and not just sitting, listening to the readings or the gospel. Um, I suppose the next question that comes from that is, why is this something that is not widely understood, even within Catholics? Where did we actually lose that connection? And where, where did we get the reputation that Catholics aren't biblical? Yeah, so um, the, the thing is this, when, for example, the, the non-biblical part comes out of the fact that the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, right? That's one of the dogmatic teachers of the church, that Mary was assumed body, uh, body and soul into heaven at, at her death. Uh, what the, this right calls the great dormition or the great sleep, right? Because Christ always refers to death as sleep in the scriptures. Uh, well, that's not in there. You know, uh, what about the Immaculate Conception? That Mary, not, remember, the Immaculate Conception is not Jesus is conceived without sin. We know that. That's in the Bible uh, at the, at the, um, in Luke's gospel. That Mary was conceived without sin. That's not in the Bible. See, so you see, you got all these teachers that are from the Bible. Well, I point out the word Bible is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. You believe in the Trinity. Yes, the Trinity. Where, show me the word Trinity. It's not there. So, so everything doesn't necessarily have to be in the Bible, but the teaching has to be rooted in the scriptures. See, that's the one of the things. The, the other thing is that we've lost the sense because a lot of people have never learned it. I mean, the things that we're talking, a lot of things that we're talking about today, a lot of Catholics haven't heard. And it's a source of frustration. I've had one parent tell me when, when she heard me give this presentation to the high school kids, she's like, I've been Catholic my whole life. I don't know that. Right? Because it, usually what? It's the se seminary, like the, the men are becoming a priests or, you know, a graduate school. If you're going to teach this stuff, then you learn it. But, but this should be something that should be taught to every Catholic because they need to know the why of the faith. They often don't want people don't want to come to mass because they don't know why they're there. They don't know what the mass exists for. They don't know the purpose of it. All they know is when I was a kid, my mom and dad told me we had to go to church. That's not good enough anymore. We need to know why, right? And, and that's why I, I uh, created the, the, the mass of scripture booklet and the, the, the presentation as well. You know, so people can understand the why of the faith. So when they go to mass, they feel more deeply connected, not to the mass itself, but to Jesus Christ. 
because that's exactly what he's doing for us in the mass to, to be so one with him that we cannot separate our lives from him. When it comes to the liturgy and the order of service and, and respecting the liturgy and, and not changing it, we're at a really interesting time at the moment in our church with the, the recent motu proprio from Pope Francis um, discussing the, the traditional Latin mass. Can you provide any insights on that current situation as I think a lot of people are very confused about where we are with the mass based on, on this motu proprio? Well, here's the thing. There's only one mass. There's only one mass that has two forms, right? So it's the same mass in two forms, the ordinary form, which is uh, the, the most common that we celebrate that happened after Vatican II. And there's the extraordinary form, which is the form that was before Vatican II, often called the traditional Latin mass. Um, both, can, both are awesome, right? Uh, but this thing about the motu proprio, quite frankly, and honestly, I don't understand. Um, what, what I see in the United States, when I go to the traditional Latin mass, I see a lot of young families who, are, who will want a deeper experience of Christ. I see a lot of young people there, uh, you know, college age, you know, that, well, not, they would, they're not giving the excuse, well, I don't understand Latin. It doesn't really connect with me. What connects with them is beauty. What connects to them is majesty. What connects with them is that they, uh, they really, when they experience the traditional Latin mass, they, they feel like they're actually worshiping God, you know? Um, and the, but see, I, I think there's just, I, I think just some people that just don't like the, the, the traditional Latin mass. We come down to it. I, I think that maybe Pope Francis believes that uh, the traditional Latin mass is, a, is, is actually separating people. You know, um, there's an, an arrogance uh, with people in the traditional Latin mass where they say, well, this is real. This is the real mass and your mass is just, it, it, you know, it's just poo or something like that. Well, you know, there are some people like that. I've met them, you know, but that's not the majority of the people. Sure. Um, and, and so basically what, what Pope Francis did, uh, he basically rescinded Samorum Pontificum, which is Pope Benedict's document that came out. That remember the, the the Latin Mass was never suppressed, right? It, it did. It never went away. It was just it was still there, but you had that permission from the bishop to use the rite and, and things like that. And, but what Pope Benedict did, he opened it up to make it more freely available. He took all the restrictions away and made it more freely available. And what Pope Francis did was basically rescind that and and brought it back to how it was before Pope Benedict opened it up again so that's basically where we are right now so you can still have the traditional latin mass in fact it's really up to the bishop like our bishop made no changes we still have what was going on before nothing changed you know so it's really up to the bishop how they want to interpret what pope francis is doing in their particular diocese uh, this, this might should, be the mass should not be a source of division it should be a source of unity you know i've been to both i've seen you know yeah and i understand that sometimes the the uh ordinary form in the mass can be open to abuses you know when the priest puts too much of his personality in there or when it becomes a show and entertainment and not worship of god because i've been to some masses like that i get it um but but when it's like you look at ewtn or other places where it's celebrated beautifully you know you really do feel like you're worshiping god 
Um, so it should be a both and not an either or. This might be a difficult question to answer at this point in time, but where do you see this going? Do you see, seeing as it is the one mass, do you see there becoming some sort of hybrid version of the traditional Latin mass and, and the Novus Ordo mass, whereas maybe there's more of it in the vernacular, but the priest still faces that orientum? And, and like, do you see a hybrid being the resolution well, to this, or do you see no, I, well, I going see, back I to where we were, two existing no, I, I see the resolution being what Vatican II asked for. Because, you know, aside from EW10, I don't know anybody else that's celebrating the Mass the way the Second Vatican Council actually, because they never said turn the priest around. It never says that. Sure. Uh, it never says take Latin out of the Mass. Because mm -hmm. you're supposed to, in fact, it's supposed to be, uh, you're supposed to, Latin's supposed to have pride of place in the Mass. So all the common responses, the, you know, the Lord be with you and also with you, or um, uh, the Our Father, the, the, the response that we say together supposed to be in latin because that's the language the universal language of the church that mm -hmm. brings us all together that forms us as a family you know um it's not a source of division it's a source of unity you know and then when the priest faces ad orienta that means facing toward the east mm -hmm. he's because why it says the, remember in zachariah's prayer the dawn from on high shall break upon us who shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death so christ is the son of god but he's also the sun, right, that, that rises from the east because he risen, he's risen from the dead. And now the light of that resurrection shines on the whole world, right? And so the idea of the rising sun, Jesus rising from the dead, churches were built with the altars facing east where the priest faces the same way as the people, right? Some people say, well, he turns his back. That's rude to turn your back on someone. He's not turning his back on the people. He's facing the same way as the people leading us in prayer to almighty God. That's why he faces. So when he's speaking to the people, he's facing the people. When he's speaking uh, to God on behalf of the people, he's facing the East. He's facing the Lord. So that, that's, so we, we have to really understand um, uh, that, that really, that's what the Seneca Vatican Council called for. We just haven't seen it implemented the way that the council um, envisioned. It's, it's interesting you say that because a lot of people blame the Novus Ordo Mass on the Second Vatican Council. But as you say, it's actually not what they prescribed, for want of a better word. And, and why is that? How did it, how did it go yeah. too far? And does it need to come back to what they prescribed? Like, is that part of maybe the hybrid that I was suggesting before? It's not necessarily a hybrid, but it's bringing it back to what was originally recommended to run yes. in conjunction with the, the traditional Latin Mass. Right. So the problem, what happened was, was there was a, a committee that was put together by Pope Paul VI called the Concilium. And the Concilium was a, was a, a group of uh, cardinals and bishops and theologians whose job was it was to implement the changes that Vatican II called for. The problem is they didn't do it right. <laughs> so, so they're the ones, the problem is they wanted to appeal to Protestants, right? They thought, oh, you know, um, let's make the mass more appealing to Protestants so we can get more Protestants to become Catholic. And so what they did was they turned the, they were not the Vatican II. It was this committee that said, turn the priest around. It was the committee who talked about, you know, taking down statues and removing altar rails. And that the Seneca Vatican Council never said that. If you read the documents, you will not find that there. It was this committee 
that implemented it that, that, that we see. And then again, the problem is also, again, when that happened, the, the, the thought was there's, there's experimentation now. So you saw all this liturgical weirdness that started to happen. And um, because people were interpreting the changes for themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and so the bishop should have just reined that whole thing in. But, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so uh, sadly, we see a lot of the abuses uh, that are happening now, and which shouldn't be happening. I mean, because uh, even after Vatican II, in fact, it says there in Sacrosanto Concilium, paragraph 22, subsection 3, that no one, not even the priests, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on their own authority. But yet we see it happen all the time, right? Why? It shouldn't be, second Vatican Council, you shouldn't be doing that. But yet we're seeing it happen all the time. So, you know, so it, it really, and John Paul II has written extensively about this. The um, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith put out um, documents constantly about following the liturgical norms and why we should follow how the church is laid out, how the mass is to be celebrated, because it's specifically directed toward the honor of God. And so when priests, well, they, they want to make it about them or they want to make it their, their version of making it more accessible. So let's do this and let's have clown masses. Let's do all this stuff. It opens itself up for abuse. And what gets lost in all that is the honor and worship of God because it comes about, it becomes about me and not about giving myself totally to God. And I think it's very telling as well that when you do see parishes that do try and maybe liven it up a little bit or, or make it a little bit more like that, that singing and dancing down the road at, at Hillsong or, or whatever else it might be, when they try and do that, they have identified that they have missed the point and purpose of this. And I think people also identify that, well, sure, you're trying to make it like that, but we know it's not supposed to be like that. And I think that's why we're seeing, you mentioned before, the young families that are now attending the Latin Mass and, and they really see the beauty and the grandeur. And it's not so they walk out feeling warm and fuzzy about, oh, this was so beautiful, it was so grand. It's because they know that they are offering God the best and doesn't God deserve the best? So when you get one of these um, loud and, and, and musical performances which is what it becomes the people might come out feeling warm and fuzzy but that shouldn't be our intention when we go in is to make sure that by the time we're leaving we're feeling warm and fuzzy our intention is to go and worship is to go and give glory to god so when you've got the beauty around you i suppose you you're more able to do that you're more able to actually achieve what you're going in to achieve and it's not to take something away with us as much as god definitely gives us something to take away he gives us himself, but that's not why we go. We go to give worship and, and, and to worship him in that setting. And so I think people really do see through the attempts from the Catholic parishes to try and make themselves more relevant. And in doing that, they're actually losing relevance because it's, it's now a confusing message, isn't it? Yeah. And remember what I said before, when we enter into the church for mass, we're leaving the secular world and entering into the space that where heaven and earth come together you know, at that altar. And so that's why the altar is the, the focus uh, of the activity, because that's where, where heaven meets earth on that altar. So, right. So secular music has no place in the mass. It just doesn't um, because that's not the place for it. Um, you know, secular music belongs in a secular world. It's this, it's this other experience, this heavenly experience that we're encountering and entering into. Um, so we have to create environments that fosters 
that relationship and deepening intimacy with God. That's why we have beautiful stained glass windows. And that's why the altar should be beautiful. And, and you know, and, and, and not just, um, you know, not just functional, right? It should be beautiful because everything that we're doing is giving honor and glory to God. Most, and because like, for example, my mother, when she walked to a Catholic church for the first time, she was amazed by just the arches and like, you know, she just looked up because why the way those churches were built, you know, they had the, 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 the columns and the arches because everything is pointing toward God. It, it just visually it causes you to look up. And that's the whole point because our focus and attention is on God, right? That's what the mass is supposed to be about. So the architecture and the beauty of the church elevates us and brings us into that space physically because we're human beings. Right, so the, the liturgy engages all of our senses, our eyes, our our we incense, right, our smells, uh, our our we stand and we kneel, right, and we sit physically, you know, and then our eyes visually, it all using all of our senses that God created, um, bring us into that space to be able to worship Him completely with all of ourselves and all of our being. I love that you mentioned the architecture and the music and, and all of that because that really does just focus you, doesn't it? And I know uh, I have, and, and Matthew Tague here at Parisi with me, we've both interviewed uh, Dr. Dennis McNamara from the Liturgical Institute. And this is his area of expertise is, is church architecture and, and church music. And it's just, it's fascinating to hear some of these things, but it really does show the power of doing something intentionally, not just playing music to say, I played music in mass, to actually pick appropriate music played with appropriate instruments uh, at the appropriate time even, and, and not just to make it a concert. When you're building a church, to actually be intentional about what is going where and why. It's not just a building to hold however many hundred people. It is it is part of our offering to God, is the church that we're offering in. The building, I should say, that, that, um, that the body of Christ is offering to God is part of the offering. So there really does need to be some attention given to all of those details. But But when it comes back to the liturgy and at the heart of the liturgy, is understanding what and why. So hopefully today we've we've identified a few of the, the what's and why's and, and how's when it comes to the mass and, and the sacred liturgy. Uh, for anyone who does... Well, wait, just one to, thing I want to mention, because yeah. you, you, you triggered something for me here. Sorry, sure, go um, ahead. You know, one of the ways that we can really be more uh, worshipful uh, and participate deeply in the mass is through silence. It's through silence. And that's something I think is missing in the mass that we need much more of. Because in the second documents of the Second Vatican Council, one of the, the, the lines that's quoted most often, it says that if the Second Vatican Council in the mass is encouraging full, conscious, and active participation. All right. So when, it, when people hear that word active participation, that means, oh, I have to be a lector, I have to be a server, I have to be doing stuff. That's not the word that's used. There's a couple of different words in Latin, right? This activa, which means active. I mean, that's where we get the word from. It means doing things. But, and there's octuositatem. And octuosa means a deeper, richer, inner participation. That's the word that's used in the Second Vatican Council for active participation. And John Paul II um, very clearly says that one of the ways we can be most active at Mass is through silence. But what happens after we receive communion, right? Typically, you know, you have the communion song, the second communion song, the meditation song. This is, we're trying to, why? Because we're so uncomfortable with silence. We're trying to fill that space 
with noise. I'm not, I mean, I'm a musician. I love music at mass. Don't get me wrong. But there also has to be time for silence. We just received Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. Can we have some silence to allow God to speak to us in that sacrament? We, we, our bodies are united with the living God. Can we take some time to ponder, you know, our relationship with him in that moment? And it's okay to have silence, but we're so afraid of silence because we're so, we're so inundated on social media. I mean, people walk around with their phones everywhere. You know, they forget that the phone is a tool, not your life. You know, it's like, it's it's like a lifeline for a lot of people. And that is, has crept in some cases into the mass where, where every moment has to be filled with something and it doesn't. We, the more we can appreciate silence, the more we can listen to God speaking to us and then, and then live our lives according to how God is, is asking us to live. Now, now you've just triggered something in me as well. And that's sure that straight after communion, the actual time to sit and reflect and, 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 and pray and be with our Lord who you've just received inside of you. But in addition to that, after the recessional hymn, I'm amazed at how quickly people just take off. They're off to the next thing. All right, we've ticked that box, let's go. But how few people actually sit once mass is finished and the recessional has happened, the priest is no longer there. How few people actually sit and just spend time with our Lord? Because in reality, we receive communion right towards the end of mass. So there's only a couple of minutes from that point, generally speaking, from that point until when mass is finished, we just don't consider spending that time with our Lord. So that, that's another great opportunity to do what you're saying. And, and it's not within the liturgy, but, but maybe because we don't get the opportunity that maybe we should in the liturgy to actually spend a few minutes after mass before you pick up and, and go back into, into life here in the mundane world to actually spend time with our Lord. Yes. And all adoration is, is an extension of that, sure. right? Adoration is extension of that time with the Lord that, that we don't have enough time, you know, during the mass because the mass has a flow, right? There's a rhythm and a flow to the mass. Uh, and so that, that extended time of being with the Lord is what Eucharistic adoration is for. Yeah, absolutely. So but the bottom line here is I think there needs to be a great education, a lot more education on the mass for people to understand why this is an obligation, or as you wonderfully put it, an opportunity, why this is something that is actually the most important thing we can be doing each week is going to worship and be with our Lord in mass. Now, the resources that you've put out, I mentioned the booklet and and finding the mass inscription, identifying why we do things, how it's scriptural, how it's actually intentional, why it's not just something to do. There's real meaning behind it. So your booklet does a fantastic job of that. And it, it does it in a, in a wonderful way. It, it, it's, look, you can see that it's not this big, thick text to get through. It gets to the point and it identifies in a really structured way where the mass comes from, what the mass is. So I highly recommend the Mass and Sacred Scripture booklet. Uh, you can get that uh, at the Perusia store website. So perusiamedia.com and then click on store. And Deacon, this is also available on your website. You have a store page as well, which is deaconharold.com. And once again, click on the store button and you can get that booklet there. In addition to that though, probably five or six years ago now, Deacon, I can't remember, one one of your previous visits to Australia, we actually filmed a video series on this, the Mass in Sacred Scripture video series. And we've just sent in various different locations. And at each location, you speak about 
a different aspect of the Mass. You start with the, the introductory rites and then we speak about the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist and we talk about the, the dismissal and, and the, the Great Commissioning, etc. So, so that's all discussed in a video series that you've recorded with us and that's also available in DVD format and also on our Perusia On Demand platform, our video on demand platform. You can, you can buy that video there as well. But in addition to that, and another way we've presented this is now one of these little devices, and I'll hold that up to the camera. This is like a USB flash drive. And within there, this little device contains all the videos from that series, a couple of the audio talks that I mentioned that you've given to a general audience, and also one that's themed more directly at, at teens and young adults. Uh, the, same, the same topic, but themed to that audience. And it also contains on this device an ebook version of the booklet. So these are some fantastic resources for people to delve deeper into this, to understand why we do what we do at Mass and, and how we do what we do at Mass and why that's important. So, so thank you very much for your work on all of these, Deacon. These are fantastic. And I really do hope people take the opportunity to, to take a look at some of these resources, because I think this is the great disconnect at the moment is understanding why we do what we do when it comes to the Mass. So Deacon, have you got anything else you'd like to say to, to wrap up on this topic? Well, uh, I would encourage uh, everyone out there if they really wanna learn more about the mass and why, right? So they, you go to mass thinking, you know, ah, I know why the priest breaks off the host and drops it into the chalice now. And I understand what that action, how is it connected to my life every day, right? You, you will experience the mass in a whole different way because now you'll understand the why of what's happening and how every part of the mass is more deeply connected to your life. So I would strongly encourage you to do that. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Deacon, for your time and for your work uh, on this particular topic. As, we can, as we've identified, it's, it's really, really important for anyone who wants to, to follow Deacon Harold and his work to know more about what he's doing, for anyone who wants to book him for a speaking event, if they're there in the States, Deacon, I believe you're, you're back on the speaking circuit again now. Um, so for anyone who wants to, to find out anything Deacon Harold, go to his website, deaconharold.com. And to find out more about what we're doing here at Perusia down under in Australia, visit perusiamedia.com. So thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Mark Griffin, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Speaking with Deacon. God bless.